We live in an age of cynicism. A critical negativity, right? A, a, a complaining spirit. We're cynical about government. People are cynical about business. Cynical about the next generation. Uh, if you've ever skimmed comments on Facebook recently, it's not really uplifting stuff. Uh, listen to the TV, listen to the radio commentary. Uh, my wife and I went to the art gallery the other day, thought it would be a fun thing to do. It was a fun thing to do. But modern art is really dark. Uh, negativity is everywhere. And we're being trained to pay attention to the darkness and ignore the light. And what's sad is that Christians can be deeply cynical too. You know, we, we moan a lot about society and culture and where it's heading. We're skeptical of everything. We complain about everything from the weather to our uni timetable to the quality of The Bachelor. I don't watch it. Uh, we're cynical that people are cynical. Uh, you know, it's not a new thing though. Uh, just think about if you know the story of the Israelites. They've been rescued from slavery out of Egypt. And what is the first thing they do? They're complaining about the food and they're like, we'd rather eat back in slavery in Egypt. It's like, come on. We have this tendency to complain and be cynical. What about you? Are you a cynical person? Do you resonate with old mate uh, Chandler Bean or Eeyore? I think I had a picture up there. Here he comes. Could be worse. Not sure how, but it could be. Ned knows who Eeyore is. Uh, let me give you a definition of cynicism. This is a, a definition of cynicism. Cynicism is the negative outlook and attitude that stems from the often subconscious internalization of a darkened worldview or despair narrative. Uh, in other words, without even realizing it, if we believe the story of the world, if we believe the story of our lives is darkness wins then we'll always assume the worst. Our outlook is going to be bleak. We're going to see the worst out of every situation. You know, we all, we all believe something about how the world pans out. Uh, we're all wearing different glasses, different worldview, how we see the world. I wonder tonight, what's the internal narrative that you're living? And how is that affecting your attitude? Remember, cynicism, it kind of stems from what we're believing inside. And I want to say, don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying that the world is rainbows and daisies. Uh, the darkness is real and the brokenness of this world is unavoidable. I'm not here to tell you that blissful ignorance is the answer. It's not cynical to realize that the world is broken. It's not cynical to acknowledge that your lives are hard and that you're suffering unrelenting. Cynicism is about making meaning of that suffering. How do we make meaning of the suffering and the brokenness? It's, it's the outlook of how we see things, not the, not the awareness of it. It's what we believe about the end of the story, not the part that we're in, right? And so to face cynicism, we need to go to the root, to our hearts, to internalize a different story. We need a different story to live by. We need God's truth and we need to live out His story in our world. 
And when we internalize God's story and we believe in His future, instead of cynicism, we're going to be marked by defiant joy in the face of despair. Defiant joy. It's the type of faith that Isaiah in this passage, he's calling his listeners to. Are the people of Judah, they could have easily have lost all hope because this dominant empire, Assyria, is coming down and, and it's going to consume them and God's judgment is going to come upon them. And so it would have been easy to lose all hope and the reality is that most would. Yet at the end of chapter 6, we were reading it this last week, Damo helped us understand God's glory in this passage. Isaiah leaves at the end a bit of an Easter egg, a bit of a, a bit of glimmer of hope. I said, if you've got a Bible there, I have it up on the screen, but I encourage you to read it in your own Bibles if you've got one with you. Uh, verse 13. Although the cities are going to be in ruin, uh, verse 13, their judgment, it's, it's described like a forest being cut down. It's going to be destroyed. Although this forest is being cut down, from that stump would be a holy seed. A seed, it's a, it's a picture of new life waiting to be born. A seed, it's often an image used in Scripture to, to describe a descendant or an offspring. It takes you back to Genesis chapter 3, the very beginning of the Bible when God promised that from the very beginning, from a descendant of Eve, after the fall, there was this glimmer of hope then. A seed would come from Eve. Her seed would conquer Satan and evil. Let's come back to our context here though. Judgment is coming for Judah. Judgment is coming and, and it's going to be through the Assyrian and the Babylonian empires. It is certain. But God, I love it. He keeps dropping these hints that salvation would come. And it would come from the unexpected. What we get here is something called the remnant. A remnant. Everyone say remnant. Good, you're still with me. A small few. A remnant is a small few that would remain. What it is, it's kind of like a different timeline being woven. Has anyone been watching Loki at the moment? A few smiles. Yep, great. Loving it. Uh, a different timeline. I'm getting a lot of blank stares. That's okay. It's about timeline, so bear with me. Uh, a different timeline is being woven, a different storyline that kind of breaks off away from imminent destruction. And so we see in chapter 7, I'm just going to skim through this quickly. God tells Isaiah, he says to Isaiah, take your son and go to the king Ahaz. If you remember the first week, Ahaz was one of these dodgy kings. Ahaz sees this judgment coming and he's afraid. And Isaiah says to Ahaz, or God tells Isaiah to go to Ahaz uh, and to take his son and to tell Ahaz that Judah's not going to fall to Assyria. Uh, Ahaz, though, he still rejects God. He's like, nah, I don't believe it. Uh, but it's kind of cool. Isaiah actually is told to bring his son. His son is called uh, Shia Yashub. It means a remnant will return. So in the face of judgment, God, again, is just dropping these hints, a remnant will return, this glimmer of hope. Then chapter 7, verse 14, if you've got your Bible there, this picture of hope becomes brighter. Another sign would be given. 
The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Ring any bells? Virgin giving birth to a son called Emmanuel. We're going to come back to how Jesus fulfills this. But for Isaiah's audience, what they're getting now is this picture of an offshoot of people, this stump that God will be with. Emmanuel means God with us. So you get this picture of a, a remnant, an offshoot of people, uh, offshoot of people that God will be with. And so come with me to chapter 8, verse 7. Again, as Isaiah is prophesying this judgment, this, this narrative of, of judgment, at the same time we get this kind of glimmer of hope peeking through. Uh, so look at this, verse 7. The Lord is about to bring against them the mighty floodwaters of the Euphrates, the king of Assyria with all its pomp. It will overflow all its channels, run over all its bank, and sweep on into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it, and reaching up to the neck. Its, outwe- its outspread wings will cover the breadth of your land. Emmanuel. It's this picture of judgment just kind of flooding in. And yet at the end of that, but he just cries out, Emmanuel, God with us. Listen to this, verse 9. I love this. Raise your war, war cry, you nations, and be shattered. Listen, all you distant lands. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand. For Emmanuel, God is with us. The same word. Isn't that beautiful? In the face of judgment, there is this faithful remnant that God will rescue. This defiant Joy, because God is weaving a different story. And so as we come to our passage that Lael read for us tonight, there are two different stories competing against each other. We see these two stories, one of judgment and darkness, another story of hope and light. For many of the people in Judah hearing this, their story would be one of judgment, hopelessness and despair but for some, for those who will listen and those who will turn back to God, their story would, would create a different timeline, one of hope. It's this kind of hope that makes us defiantly joyful as Christians. As we see these two different stories, as we see cynicism and darkness and despair, and yet we too can have the same hope. We can choose to live out the story of hope so we can have that same kind of confidence as Isaiah says, you know, devise your plan, but it will not stand for God is with us. So that brings us to our passage tonight, uh, chapter 8, verse 19. I encourage you to have it in front of you. Uh, for some, as Isaiah is proclaiming this prophecy, uh, for some their story will be darkness and despair when they reject the light of God's word. So on, I want to read to you. This to you again from verse 19. Have a look there. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Let me explain what's happening here. Is the people of Judah were ignoring God's word 
And instead of the, the, in the face of threat, uh, they were turning to the occult, to, to witchcraft, to astrologers, those who were talking with the dead, uh, thinking that somehow they would find the answers to their fear. It sounds kind of whack. It sounds kind of crazy. Why would you do that? But how often for us, when we're faced with threat and suffering and darkness, it's going to be tempting to look for light wherever we can find it. A search for meaning anywhere. Uh, maybe it's the horoscopes in the paper, if you're into that, you read that. Maybe it's clickbait, clickbait on Facebook or Instagram, looking for, you know, which Harry Potter character are you? Or what does your birth month mean for you? Or, you know, watching different YouTube channels, interpreting the times this way or that, searching for meaning. We turn, we turn away from God and we're just looking for light anywhere we can find it. And Isaiah, he sees the craziness of it all. He's like, why would you go anywhere but God? What do the dead have to offer you? And then comes this warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. In other words, when we close our Bibles, we turn off the lights. If you don't live according to this, you say, you've got no light. You're turning off the lights. The people didn't realize that as they turned their backs on God, they were stepping into darkness, not enlightenment. And so confronted with your fears, what are, you, what are you listening to? What are you turning to? How tempting is it for us to let other voices come and shape our heart? Remember I talked about that inner, that inner meaning, that gut worldview, the way and we're just letting other people tell us what to think. You know, in our fear and our darkness, uh, even something as innocent as turning to our, to our non-Christian friends and search for that meaning, and we're looking for that meaning. We can let that lead us away from God, away from true hope. We turn our lights off when we close God's Word. And so as the light was rejected, the people, as they're hearing this, it's going to spiral further and further into darkness. Now look with me, verse 21. Distressed and hungry, they will roam the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged. And looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. See, the further into darkness they go, the more bitter and the more angry they become. And, and instead of turning back to the light, instead of receiving God's mercy and renewing their hope, instead as they turn their backs, a different story takes hold. And they look up and they curse God. Isn't it sad how many Christian leaders have, have been walking away from the, the faith recently? And the tragedy is, what are they turning to? What, what hope is their alternative? Instead of humility and faith before God, anger and bitterness takes root such that it becomes easy to blame God for our struggles, to blame God for the brokenness in our lives. We fool ourselves thinking that this will make us feel better to point the finger at God. But on the other side of that anger, on the other side of that blame, what they find is, is not, not relief. Once the pointing and the blaming and the cursing is done, it's not, it's not peace. Look at verse 22. Then, after they've 
been down this spiral, then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. This is the reality. When, when we take our eyes off God and we look towards the earth, you know, we might see a glimmer of goodness there and in humanity somewhere, but you know, we're pretty lucky in Australia with the comforts and the pleasures that we look, we enjoy. But the further that we look, the darker it gets. The things that we love fade and they break. You know, the bodies we dance in, they slow down and they, they ache. Our mental illness plagues us. Like a, like a dark blanket just weighing on us. People, people are starving, wars are raging, and in the end we die. And what for? Game over. You know, I, don't, I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer, and apologies to any Debbies out there. Uh, but the warning of God's word is exactly the reality that we see. If we're willing to play the timeline out in our head. This is how you're seeing the world right now. On the other side of our anger, on the other side of our pain, what do we see? See, as these people, they've turned to the world, they've looked, and just darkness. When we turn away from God, the alternative is darkness. That's why we must be careful that we're not allowing these other voices to be our guide. You know, these people are going to these crazy ways of trying to search for meaning. We can't let that happen. What voices are we going to allow to shape our internal narrative, that, that internal belief, our gut worldview? We need to guard that carefully we find ourselves cynical and, and pessimistic and negative all the time it might be that we're paying attention to the darkness and it's made itself at home here in our hearts but there is a different story a different narrative that was being woven for the people of Judah for the, for the remnant who would believe and trust God. The same story that is true for us. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. These beautiful words. Nevertheless, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, uh, they were the outskirts of the land of Israel. And I've got a picture there at the top there. As you imagine, imagine Assyria and all these empires are right above there. And so for centuries, this land would have faced the brunt of coming invasions. If anyone had a reason to be cynical, it was these guys. They were literally staring down the barrel of Assyria's shotgun. And yet Isaiah says, hope will come from here. The light of the world would dawn here near Galilee. Instead of darkness, light. Instead of gloom, 
joy. Look at verse 2. Chapter 9, verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. The people, they're celebrating as if it's harvest time. Can you imagine farmers laboring and working and planting, but then harvest time? Harvest time meant payday. It meant feasting and celebrating and rest. They're celebrating as if winning a battle as warriors rejoice. It's like that feeling of crows or port winning the grand final. Absolute elation. Have you ever had that feeling? Hey, Port supporters, not for a while, or crows. Have you had that feeling, that rush of happiness and relief? In the face of utter darkness, why are they so happy? Why are they so joyful? I love this picture of baby Groot in the Guardians of the Galaxy. Just dancing and happy when the world behind him is ending. Why are they celebrating? Verse 4, for because two things have happened. One, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. In other words, just like Gideon, uh, that's talking about Midian's defeat. Gideon, with only 300 soldiers, defeated an army of 10,000 Philistines at Midian. Imagine that kind of celebration. The people have been freed from oppression. The heavy weight on their shoulders, the, the rod of punishment and torment from their oppressors have been shattered. Isn't that what we long for? Freedom from oppression. Freedom to walk the streets at night without fear. Free to travel and live without crushing expectations and crushing pressures to perform or be something. Free from exams. Free from bills. Free from sickness freedom ultimately freedom from our spiritual enemy who holds us captive with his lies and his despair freedom from oppression secondly freedom from conflict uh, verse 5 every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning will be fuel for the fire what's going on they, they're going to throw away their war clothes ditch their battling shoes because it's done the conflict is done. Free from fighting. Free from friends backstabbing. Peace between brothers and sisters and mothers and daughters and fathers and sons. Lay your weapons down. You don't need them anymore. What are the conflicts that you're going through? Is freedom what you seek? What prison are you living in right now? What is, what's tying your hands? A sickness or a, an addiction? A fight that just never seems to resolve? Are we just longing for this kind of freedom? So how, how are these people so defiantly joyful? How, how could this be? How could freedom from oppression and freedom from conflict be their story? 
Was it another army that kind of came to their rescue? Maybe the people themselves rose up and created a resistance. Uh, Did the people start experimenting in yoga and they discovered an inner Zen? Did they happen across a storeroom of fine wine and drink their worries away? Did they win the lottery? Did they find that perfect girlfriend or boyfriend and all their inner darkness just gone? No. Justice would come from an unexpected place and light would shine when no one was looking. God would do something unimaginable which makes it all the more glorious. How? Verse 6, look at this. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This was the light that was dawning. This was the hope for a world that was trapped in utter darkness. A child born that would share the same title as God. Just try and think of this for a moment. Let's process this. Just think of this. Reminded last week, remember that picture of the throne room of God? The holiness, majestic, all-consuming glory of God, highly exalted, And now that glory is being attributed to a child, a human being. This is the different story being told. The world deserves the darkness. We turned away from God. We violated His goodness with our selfishness and our sin. Utter darkness should be our story. Nevertheless, to us, a gift A child is born. God would come to us. It would take 700 years after this prophecy, yet God would do it. In the town of Bethlehem, King David's hometown, to a virgin girl named Mary, a child would be born. You know what they called him? Emmanuel, Jesus, but also they called him Emmanuel. God with us. The Messiah has come. The promised seed, offspring that would come from Eve. And the the people of Israel knew this. They they knew a descendant from Abraham, an offspring from Abraham, Genesis 12. The offspring from David's throne would come, the Messiah. He would take his rightful place on the throne. And this is why verse 7 is significant. This child would be the child that would reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. God was turning back the darkness for those who would receive him. Let me take you to Matthew chapter 4. The people, the people would hold on to these words for centuries, centuries until the light would arrive. Uh, Matthew Uh, Chapter 4, verse 12. Uh, When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Uh, Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said by the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, 
Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This kingdom's here. It's, it's come. The king prophesied in Isaiah has arrived. Jesus' kingdom is going to be never ending. Perfect justice. Perfect righteousness. Perfect peace. Two stories competing. Two stories. One that ends in utter darkness and another story that ends in everlasting light. Two stories. God's story, unexpected and beautiful, would come to its climax. Freedom from oppression found in Jesus. Freedom from conflict found in Jesus. Light and hope and joy would be found in Jesus, the wonderful counselor to guide us into all truth, the almighty God to deliver us from our brokenness, the everlasting father who would accept and love us as a perfect father should, the prince of peace who would bring reconciliation to fighting and hate. God has not abandoned you to the darkness. He has not abandoned you in the darkness. This is why we can be defiantly joyful. It's a rebellious kind of joy that looks in the face of darkness and laughs because we know that the darkness no longer defines us. You know, we're so addicted to agitation and fear every time something happens in the news. And I, and I think we kind of enjoy the kind of fear and agitation a little bit. Uh, and we, we like to freak out. It's easy. Yet, there is a different kind of attitude that God calls us to. A different kind of attitude. It's the kind of attitude we read in chapter 8, verse 9 and 10. As I, as I as he's looking at this coming, this, this coming Assyrian empire, he's like, come at me. You got nothing on me. Verse 9, raise the war cry, you nations, and be shattered. Listen, all you distant lands. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand, for God is with us. For literally, Emmanuel, it's his victory cry. This is how we overcome cynicism and negativity. We internalize the truth of God's story. To us, a child has been born. God is with us. Jesus, who on the cross, as he, as he hung there, shattered the power of darkness that has its hold over us. He takes the darkness that we caused, that we deserve, and he takes that onto himself. And as he raises from the dead three days later, he rips us into his kingdom, out of the darkness. This is our story. This must be our internal operating system. 
This is why you can be defiantly, stubbornly, unrelentingly joyful in the face of your darkness. Darkness does not win. Your sin does not win. Your mental illness does not win. Your fears of the future does not win. Your loneliness does not win. Your abuse that you suffered, it doesn't win. Your parents' divorce doesn't win. The darkness does not define you. And now Isaiah says, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this in verse 7. The zeal, it will. That word zeal in the original Hebrew language, it, it, it represents this divine, unrelenting, jealous love of God. God is fierce in going after us and turning back the darkness. When, when we turned our backs on God, God didn't sulk or get passive or cynical like we do. He was fierce in his pursuit of love for his glory and honor to restore us and bring us back to the light out of our sin, out of our shame and bring us into his kingdom. And so Matthew says in his gospel, I want to take you back here. Matthew, after he's quoted from this Isaiah passage, I'll read it to you again. He says, verse 17, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, it's a word that means turn. This is what we've got to do. Instead of looking toward the world, remember before this spiral and they turn their eyes on the world. He says, repent, turn around. Turn back to God and His Word and receive His light. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from your bitterness. Turn away from trusting yourself and, and tr- finding meaning in other places. Turn to God. You know, some of you know the light, you believe the light, and yet are still marked by cynicism and negativity. Would you ask the Holy Spirit to grow in you a spirit of joy and celebration? Christians should be the best people to party with because we have reason to celebrate. In fact, I believe celebration is a discipline. It's a discipline. It's something we need to practice defiantly as we shine in this world. Defiant joy overcomes cynicism. Defiant joy. Now, I feel tonight uh, we need to take the opportunity to renew our commitment to Jesus, our everlasting King. On Friday night, we saw a great outpouring of God's Spirit at youth, and I believe tonight God is doing a similar work uh, in us. And maybe for some of you, a chance to give your allegiance to Jesus for the first time. To repent, as Jesus says, to turn away from darkness and instead come to God. He wants to receive you, wants to show you himself and his love for you. Come and receive forgiveness for your sins. Maybe you're here, you've been allowing the darkness to rule your inner life. You've been resisting the light of Jesus. And though you believe, you're still, you're just turning back to your sin. Will you turn back and submit to him? 
He zealously yearns for your love because he knows you're going to be most satisfied in him. Will you be defiant in the face of your darkness, believing in faith that Jesus is the light of the world, the hope of your eternity? There's two stories competing. Which one are you going to make yours? God is with us. He does not condemn those who turn to him. He will not reject you. And we may not be free of the darkness in this life, yet we can be defiant in our hope and in our faithfulness to the King who will come again one day to bring everything to completion, ruling in perfect justice and righteousness forever. I want to invite the band up as we finish in a minute. I mentioned it before, I really think I want to take this opportunity uh, as a chance to renew this commitment, this defiant joy that we want to claim. And so if you feel led in this moment uh, to lay down your lives again at His feet, as an act of faith in this last song, I just want to invite you as we all stand in a minute, uh, if during the song you feel led uh, come forward come sit down the front here or kneel whatever you feel comfortable uh, and be brave let's pray for each other let's worship let's take this hold let's take hold of this opportunity we're going to say i'm not going to let the darkness define me i'm going to come and believe that to me to us a child has been born jesus christ has come the darkness does not have to define you jesus is waiting he's ready to forgive ready to renew your hope so I'm going to pray for us now and I invite you to stand as we do that. God, we thank you so much that though we turned our backs on you, as a world we have rejected you, our creator. And judgment is what we deserve that you loved us yet to send your son as the hope of this world a light that would dawn so Lord we want to see your light afresh again in our darkness and I just pray over this beautiful family here tonight that whatever darkness that is facing them whatever sin that they're uh, they're turning to away from you whatever brokenness or hurt or betrayal that they've encountered, whatever oppression or conflict that is close to them. Lord Jesus, I pray that your light would shine again anew, that we would see, we would see the hope of the world, that this would be our story, that we would be a community marked by this defiant joy in the face of darkness because we know how the story plays out. We know that the future is not utter darkness for those who would receive you, Lord. We believe that you've come and you've come to receive us and restore us. Nothing based on our merit, but yours alone, Lord, we thank you. And so I pray, Lord, if you're calling children home tonight, those who have been walking in darkness, uh, that you would move Holy Spirit in their heart to want to receive you for the first time. 
And Lord, for many of us who have been, who believe in you, but have been walking in darkness and forgetting the hope that we look to, I pray, Lord, renew in them a fresh wind and a fresh fire to know you and to see you and to love you and to delight in you and to find their hope and find their peace in you again. Lord, I thank you that you are a good father who receives and loves us. So would you do that work, Lord? We want to see you magnified and glorified tonight as we respond to you. So we want to give you praise. We want to, we want to declare in faith joy in our hearts forever. Forever. We thank you in Jesus' name.